Let's ask Frank Wright. Frank Wright's on the uh, Dude Maker hotline here. Uh, Frank, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you loud and clear. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, 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 so, sorry, I regret that you can hear me. If I'm sincere. <laughs> well, it's your fault for talking to me in the first place. There we are. <laughs> so you are hearing this news from the Vatican, I assume. Well, I try not to, but uh, th th there it is. I, I was given some good advice once, which was to try to take less notice of it. Uh, and uh, so I do try to avoid it, but it, it's it's becoming difficult to ignore, isn't it? Anything but Catholicism, really. It's the ABC <laughs> from the Holy See. <laughs> Anything but Catholicism. Yeah, yeah, it's as easy as ABC. ABC, simplest, oh, Remy, one, it two, is. three. <laughs> you see, if Michael Jackson were alive, we could get him to, you know. <laughs> we could yes, do he, he could probably do very well at the next conclave. He <laughs> probably do very well with the next conclave. Uh, how many votes are for Pope Jackson? <laughs> <laughs> how many votes for Pope Thriller? Uh, raise your. <laughs> you know, I told. Uh, I He'd moonwalk all the way to the top. I'm telling you. Uh, that'd be great to see a, a, a Holy Father in the red shoes moonwalk. Across St. Peter's, uh, you know, folks, I'm, I'm, I'm being absurd to illustrate absurdity. This, it, as I told all of you, and I'm just going to reiterate this, I told you eight weeks ago, the best thing you can do is to ignore all that because there's nothing you can do about it. As far as you are concerned, it didn't happen. <laughs> uh, pray for the parties involved and then pray for your priest that your priest is not asked to do this because this is what they're going to do so Frank you know how they're going to do this they're going to do no. the same thing that they did with heterosexual people Christians being asked to bake cakes for homo weddings they're, they're going to set these priests up and then they're going to go together as lesbians or as sodomites and they're going to go to these priests and ask them to bless the, the unions and then the priest is correctly, dutifully many of them are going to refuse and when they refuse then they're going to rat them out to their bishop and then you're going to have a bunch of priests that are going to be cancelled or told that they are being rigid and insincere and mean and mean spirited and what have you this is if you follow this to its logical conclusion it probably leads to many people being in schism mm -hmm. well it wasn't it was it, it was quite I suppose simple to foresee that the whole synodal process was going to result in what you might properly call a kind of parallel or new religion. Uh, and it, it, it did seem to be that way. It was kind of heavily signaled from the beginning and it does seem to be going that way in the end. I mean, my frivolous remark comes from the fact that um, <clears throat> I know a person who's very good at theology and I complained to him a couple of years ago about this process and everything that I'd seen on the internet about it. And he, he advised me to take no notice and to try and become a better Catholic. Uh, I can't say I took his advice to the letter because I prefer to think of it as being less bad. I think I'm, I'm trying to become a less bad Catholic. <laughs> but th that's what I've done, and it has caused me far less dyspeptic rage. Uh, but that said, I have expected pretty much the worst, and most of it has come to pass. And when you say that uh, you're just not going to pay attention to this, you're not giving an, uh, an audience. You're not giving your mind audience. Um, instead, you're going like, there's nothing I can do about that. Here's what I can control. This household, this soul, 
this process to people I know. I could try and lead by an example. And I'm just going to pretend like I didn't know that any of that happened, which is, I think, the advice your theologian friend gave you is pretty much the advice that I, if anyone has asked me about it, I mean, dude, there's no, there, you know, there's no sense in even in the uh, Catholic media paparazzi, if you will, who are going to now be all over this. They're going to be, see, told you so. They're, they're, here, there'll be about, there'll be $10 million raised today for Catholic YouTubers. This is going to be a great day if you're a Catholic YouTuber. Yeah, I, I, I see. I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that the, the trouble is, is that rage farming is very lucrative. Uh, and so if you tell people doom and gloom, they tend to get addicted to doom and gloom and they tend to get quite a buzz out of being um, enraged or you know annoyed and so on. But it's, it's, it's a simple kind of dopamine loop. I think that when you look at it from a more spiritual perspective, like what, what are my duties? What should I be doing with my life? I, I don't think it's very productive to get addicted to rage in a, this kind of impotent sense. I prefer to try and look at what it is that I haven't done in my own life that I can control, like you said, and try and look to that. Uh, you know, do I do I observe the Catholic faith? Do I do my best for my family? Do I observe what I should observe in terms of charitable obligations and things like that, things that you can change and you find that that rewards you and that it reminds you that the Catholic faith doesn't exist solely in the gift of the Holy See. It's, it's, in, it's in Catholics too, and we all have a duty to uphold that. And that's where the faith will survive. And that's where it is surviving. Yeah, I, uh, that, that, that's, that's good advice. Uh, Frank Wright is uh, the author and the Substacker. You can find him, frankwright.substack.com. Let's talk about the product is you. Synthetic identities in mass society with the bear, with the uh, the access, the graphic, the authenticity, consultant, alliance, brand values with consumer <laughs> beliefs. You know, this one, this one is about two months ago uh, that, uh, the, uh, that I read this, but this is really true. The product is you, fair listener, fair web surfer, fair, uh, the, 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 the people that were counseled to stay off the Internet during the synod. They're not going to go back on it. Well, the product is you. And uh, did you give license to anyone to box you up and sell you back to you? You may not have, but that's what they're doing. In order to become a better product myself, I've bought these pair of uh, £3.99 intellectual spectacles, which you can see immediately confer upon me a sense of gravitas and dignity. They don't have any lenses in them, which makes them very convenient. <laughs> Well, you know, you can't tell that on the internet, you know, I mean, like, nobody knows, you know, it's all about the impressions, you see. So when I put them on like this, obviously I'm very clever, cleverer than everyone here. And when I do this, I remind you that I'm cleverer than you. <laughs> there we go, you see, so I'm going to take that off, such is my intellectual power. And because I've become a product myself, I've now got my own marketing material, which is here. I'm just going to show you, see. <laughs> Intellectual like, success. <laughs> success, success, Max, with three X's because I success Max. I'm a pro at success maxing, as you can see. There's my credentials. Yes, yes. I, I will. I will hopefully, uh, you know, conclude this. Um, can I get one of those? By the way, can you? Some, can you? Can you? Can you make me one of those? <laughs> No, 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 I'm afraid no. It's success max pros only, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, I, I hope to conclude this uh, this appearance with some success max pro advice 
which I've been applying to my own life, which has made me into the success max pro that you see before you today. But, but on a more serious note, um, there was a thing called Adbusters that was around in the 90s when it was still kind of lefty hip, uh, when the left wing was still interested in combating huge corporations that destroy everything else but themselves. And that's, that's gone terribly out of fashion, uh, rather like being opposed to permanent wars and things like that. But there was a thing called Adbusters, and this was an organisation that was trying to subvert, or uh, they made subverts instead of adverts, trying to subvert the power of advertising. And they made a, they made a television commercial, which was called The Product Is You. And it was someone watching the TV, and as, as the camera panned round, it showed a barcode on the back of someone's neck as they were watching this static-ridden television um, screen. And I thought that was a very compelling argument about the power of propaganda, but I don't think many people really acknowledge how powerful propaganda is and how the mechanism of producing feelings by attachment to symbols, which is used to sell products, also sells you political ideals, also sells you what's called the current thing, like your attachment to the latest scandal or uh, sensation in the media, such as the Ukraine war or wearing a strange pink hat or, or worshipping St. Fentanyl. These, all, all these different things are created by um, the attachment of positive feeling to a concept, which is the basis of advertising as it's been invented around 100 years ago. So the ultimate destination of, of this process of mass society is to colonise your mind and your emotions, and it does. Now, who is Jennifer Bilek? Oh, well, I came across Jennifer Bilek by, um, when I did that series on the horrendous transgender phenomenon, Jennifer Bilek was the person who'd done the most thoroughgoing research into who funds what I discovered was an international and very lucrative, many billion dollar industry in transgender surgery and hormones. Bilek was the person who noted that the Pritzker family have a very prominent interest, not only in the business end of things, so they will own shares and indeed some of the companies that produce the technologies associated with the transgender phenomenon. But they'll also sponsor university departments and medical facilities in the United States and elsewhere to promote this research. And then they'll also promote through patronage and donations, the presence of favorable media articles in the international press. So it's, it's a very well-organized machine. And, and Bilek was the person who brought this all together and showed you that it was one of the Pritzkers who was the first United States senator who, to introduce, I think, pro-trans laws to favour gender transition from the age of nine, from memory. I think he's the governor of Illinois. He is the governor of Illinois. That's right. He's not a senator. He's the governor of Illinois. Or it's right? even more interesting than that because he has a sister who is now his brother and a brother who is now his sister. Yeah, yes, yes. They are. They they basically practice what they preach and two of them are Trannington's. Yes, yes, they are. Um, now, under the um, uh, under the same title, uh, uh, okay. So this makes the transgender trend the pinnacle consumer experience. It really is. This is the ultimate in consuming something. Even though it's consuming a false reality, you can still consume that. I can actually be all that I want to be. You can actually become the $6 million man or $6 million boy or $6 million girl without getting any bionics installed, but you could sure as Hades have a bunch of fake prosthetics uh, in the form of sexual organs, or you can have some removed, can't you? Yes, and those, those prosthetics will live forever because they're non-biodegradable. I suppose there's a certain immortality to be conferred there. 
knowing that your um, fake lady parts will, will never deteriorate. However, the, the thing about this situation is that the transgender phenomenon is curious from the consumer point of view because it does seem to be the perfect fusion of the consumer dream. It's a kind of eroticized desire. Uh, it's something that begins in the mind, it's transmitted through advertising or what we call social contagion. So you, know, you get the idea of this product through your contact with um, people on the internet and through images in the media, and you think, well, that might be a good career move for me. And it, and, and it usually is nowadays a good career move to be demonstrably insane on the basis of a sexual fetish. If you adopt this, you can then buy yourself, literally buy yourself, not just a new body, but a new identity, a new personhood. This, this, this whole conceptual world that's, that used to be just limited to the fantasy of becoming, you know, like the godlike people in the adverts by buying a pair of trainers. Right. <laughs> what you can do now is transform. Well, well, that's basically it, isn't it? You know, like wear these trainers and, and, and become immortal. Uh, so you know, now, now you can buy. Now you can, as it were, transition. You can buy yourself not just a, a, a kind of a, a set of prostheses, but a whole new identity. And people are compelled by law to respect whatever you call yourself. And indeed, you're given political and professional advantage on the basis of this new identity. So it's heavily incentivized. It is the pinnacle of consumerism. You can buy yourself into a new life and, and, it, and it works. I mean, it's not the kind of life I would choose for myself. I mean, I'm, I'm a dignified wig wearer. You're a bigot. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> that's, that's a disgusting thing to say. And I'm going to make you ashamed of yourself. <laughs> when I wear a wig, I do so in a dignified manner. <laughs> There's nothing gay about this. Whereas, uh, you know, I can't say the same for my um, transgender cohorts. The thing is, is that you, you're really looking at an attempt to escape by being able to buy things. And... And also what, what, what Bilek did was pointed out the bizarre and monstrous fact that Terrasen, a religion called Terrasen, is, is basically being promoted as a transgender religion by a man who calls himself Martin Rothblatt. Uh, I think he was called Morris or Martin originally, but he, he, he decided to become a woman, as it were, in the 90s. And he owns serious radio and is very rich. Uh, and he's, he's founded a, a religion that he says... It has four tenets, and one of them is technology is God. Okay. So the, 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 this is a literal attempt, obviously, to displace God. They, they reason, most people who are sincere in their efforts to undermine the influence of God acknowledge that God is supremely significant and that it's important for them to offer some alternative. So this one is, a, is, is an explicit alternative, and it says that technology is God, and why is that then? Because it not only confers the ability for you to transform yourself, but as Rothblatt's attempted to demonstrate, it allows you to fantasize about some kind of immortality achievable via machines, which he has done so by producing what could only be described as a bizarre animatronic racist caricature of his still living wife. He's got this kind of plastic head of his wife, which talks in this slurred manner as if it's taken the muscle relaxants that I've advised people to do in job interviews. <laughs> and, and, and it really does look like a kind of, it looks like a kind of racist cartoon that would be banned from broadcast media. Uh, his wife's black. But the, the thing is, is that this has been put out by him uh, as a kind of trailer for the technological post-human future. And it couldn't possibly be more dystopian and horrific in, in reality. But there it is. These people are fanatics. And who is this guy? He's called Martin Rothblatt, and I think his original name is yeah, Rothblatt, and he, he, he's the owner and founder, I think, of Sirius FM's Billionaire. 
and he was he is now last year he was awarded female ceo of the year uh, because of course of course why not i mean naturally naturally a, a, a rich lunatic uh, with with i think he's still um, intact uh, uh, but you know obviously he's got kind of woman like hair that's enough isn't it you know he wears a pair of tights occasionally so Maggie, you're sending me a picture of. Uh, are you sending me a picture or just you? I can yeah, because I need I need to see this guy. Uh, I, I I really want to see a picture of the uh, of the wife who's just the head. You did, did it talks? There's this there's this there's, this, there's, a, there's a video done by someone from the mainstream media. Oh no! Media. No! No! <laughs> no! No! I can't unsee it. No. Get the one where there's the fat man explaining it, right? There's a fat man from the company who's obviously staring at the camera. He's probably blinking in Morse code. You know, saying, please <laughs> get me out of here. Right? Morse the boss has told him to take it seriously, and he has to sit there next to this head, right, and tell you all why it's a great idea to do this to your still-living loved ones. So he had a, what, he had a copy of her? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's got a CD of most of her thoughts and mannerisms, and he's kind of uploaded it into this kind of racist, rubber-faced mannequin. Oh, good <laughs> Lord. This... And this is flattering. I think it was a Christmas present to his wife or something. You know, look, I made you immortal. You know, I can't wait to have my model. <laughs> so I can look at it and go, you don't look like me. Yes, I do. No, you don't. <laughs> Frank Wright I is. Will, I will live forever, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Frank Wright is a, uh, is a is a is a writer on Substack. He's a regular guest here on the Mike Church Show. Find him at frankwright.substack.com. Uh, I want you to tell everyone about the midwit. Now, the, the, oh, oh. let me set it up. Let me set this up. Okay, I'm gonna set this up for uh, my old buddy here. All right. So the midwit, the midwit is your average faux communicator who tries to do what I try and do here every day but tries to do it by living vicariously through experts. It's the expertocracy people. Studies show. And here with the, the, the doctor who conducted the survey and the study. So they don't really know anything. They're, 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 they can spell and write just good enough to get by. And then they just you have this, you just keep adding your expert and your expertocracy to your interviews or to whatever, whatever it is you're promoting or selling or whatever media product it is that you're putting your name to. It's not really you. Right. It's the it, it's it's the again, it, 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 let's bring the people that are smarter than everyone else to bear on this. And it gives the patina Oh wow, that's really smart. He's really smart. She's really smart. They're they're not smart. That's, this is why you call them midwits. It's it's a pejorative term, and you've got to be careful about being pleasant towards other people reflexively. But <laughs> a, a mid midwittery does get overused. Uh, it, it, it's become more of a kind of a generalized slur now. But I, I would say that it has a proper function in explaining that habit where. People try to use the prestige of what they think is a, a credentialed intellectualism or expertise. And if there's one thing that shows you how erroneous that is, it, that should be the experience of the last three years, is that, that, you know, experts do exist and there are, you know, respectable minds in the world. But to invoke these things as if they were absolute authorities is, is erroneous. And it's, it is, as you say, you know, it's the mark of the midwit to, to advance ideas, borrowed ideas, never their own, from sources that are somewhat dubious at times, in order to win arguments. 
um, and, and so it's not really about winning the argument. It's about displaying your own personal vanity through a, a game, through a kind of borrowed intellectual prestige. It's, it's very closely related, in my view, to credentialism, where yes. you, we used to have a system, I grew up in a system, where you, if you wanted to, go, wanted to go to big school, like university, you had to be clever, whereas now you just get a loan um, and everyone comes out with a bit <laughs> of paper. But, but it's, it's a Ponzi scheme. But so the, the whole credential idea, although there are still credentialed experts with respectable intelligence, the people who have genuine expertise just because of their aptitude and experience, the, the idea itself is somewhat debased. You would also appeal to authorities who had lied to you consistently throughout lockdowns or about you know, the forever wars or so on, as if they were indubitable arbiters of reality. So a midwit is basically, in my view, a person who is unaware of how superstitious their view of the world actually is. Uh, and yet they will not only display that superstition with a sense of self-righteousness, but they will look down on you for not sharing it. And I think that the psychological function of midwittery, it, it confers a kind of unearned superiority or a, a kind of unmerited sense of self-elevation. And that's the real motive behind it. It's not a search for truth or a, a wish to extinguish falsehood in the world. It's basically to show people that you're better than them uh, on, on, on grounds that basically can't be justified. You know, uh, uh, the expertocracy, uh, uh, expertocracy is a creation of the last two decades of the 20th century and then the first two or three decades of the 21st. Um, uh, and I, uh, the, to give you an example of kind of what he's talking about, what, what, what I'm talking about with the, uh, with the expertocracy and the fact that there are actual people that are very knowledgeable and are experts. The first, most people's first acquaintance who are around my age, uh, you're, you're, you're but a pup compared to me, but around my age, uh, your, your first probably encounter with someone that was an expert is when you encountered Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones knew everything there was to know about ancient Egypt and Egyptology and about the hieroglyphics. He knew everything about the Lost Ark. You know, he was he was this genius who uh, surrounded himself with other kind of geniuses about archaeology. And then, you know, when they introduced Sean Connery as his dad three years later or two years later or whenever, um, you know, then he, then he becomes the super genius. And uh, the the thing is, is that they actually were experts. They actually did have have uh, applied knowledge you know he did start at a university and he was kind of studying and teaching ancient uh, ancient Egypt and uh, the study of archaeology which by the way is quite frankly is, is, is boring it's boring as hell ask Lord Carnarvon how boring it was before he disappeared inside the uh, the pyramid <laughs> what, what's that for some in London whenever they build new buildings in the city of London You've got to go to an archaeological firm to excavate the foundation to see what's under there, because that's the only chance they get to do it. So when they knock something down in the city, you, you go in. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do that, you know, because I'm extremely good at sabotaging any gainful employment I've ever had. <laughs> but I ended up doing things like this. And, and I just thought, oh, it'd be fascinating. And I stood in front of like six muddy boxes in a shed every day, just brushing things with a toothbrush, right? And it was never anything <laughs> interesting. I always thought like a, like a child, like the child I am, oh, oh this is going to be like a piece of Roman mosaic. And, like I'd bring it up to the boss, he'd just chuck it in the bed and say, oh, a lot of rubbish. Like, you find bits of bones and glass and stuff like that, but... 
I sat at lunchtime once and I said to one of these archaeologists, I said, look, come on, there have to be some wacky stories. Because like you said, it's, right. it's boring, it's tedious. And he said, ah, there is. And he said, you see that bloke over there, him, him, him over there having his lunch. Yeah? And he said, he's a liar. He's, he's a liar. <laughs> and he said, I was in North Africa with him and he reckons these lines were made by outer space aircraft, meteorite, all kinds of stuff. Right? And I said, well, really? Yeah. And he said, I said, why did he say that? He said, well, it's not true. He's obviously just made it up for the attention. <laughs> but, but he did get the attention. And I think that what happened is, is that the tedium of archaeology had driven him so bad that he started inventing like alien narratives. So he still had a job, surprisingly. But, you know, that's what it does to you. Archaeology sends you, sends you loopy. Or it sends you into the bottom of a, into the bowels of a pyramid from which the curse of Pharaoh actually is acted upon you and you never return. I mean, everyone that was on Carnarvon's expedition, including Carnarvon himself, they all died, didn't they? Uh, yeah, I think it was horrific, wasn't it? You know, it was horrific. And it was the curse of the mummy. Uh, maybe, I don't know what it was, but I do know if you actually, if you want to study archaeology, you're going to need to know a little bit about Lord Carnarvon. Because he, Carnarvon is the one that, that found King Tut's tomb, right? When Carnarvon wanted so. to, 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 yeah. to Tonkinayaman. I've seen a Playmobile set about that. So yes, I think you're right. <laughs> Frank Wright is with us from uh, Substack. Uh, tell us about the war flag. This is one of my favorite subjects, the war flag wavers. This is, a, this is a profound sentence to begin this part. People who wave flags for wars in which they will never fight are not merely stealing valor. They are celebrating death and destruction. We are possessed with a media and a world and an academia and anyone that's a with war flag wavers who all insist that Israel is the holiest of holy nations on earth. Anything they do, anything they touch, anything they say is holy and all for God and for the defense and for the promotion of God. And most people even think for Christianity. Uh, but here uh, in the last three months, they have left a, a trail of, of dead bodies, bombed out, blown out buildings now, and have basically decimated an entire three and a half million people uh, or two and a half million people now to that they have corralled now into an area that's half the size, uh, no, it's about a quarter of the size, of the island of Manhattan. And the people that are screaming loudest for the war, they all want to wear their, you know, they wore the Ukraine flag on their social media for a year and a half. Now they just swapped it out. They went, oh, that's, that's yesterday's war. This is the new and the goodest and biggest of all goodest and biggest wars. Um, these people are not heroic. Yeah, and I think the Taiwan flag got a look in as well. You know, let's not forget Taiwan. That was that was a brief thing, wasn't it? That was current last summer for a while, but uh, fell out of fashion. The thing is, is that it, it, it's it's this idea that the world can be simplified to avatars on social media that is extremely dangerous. The, the the war flag warriors, if you like, are people who probably never got in a fight once. I'm right. not saying that's a good or bad thing, but if you know people who have been in wars. They're quite punchy people. Obviously, you know, the right. war-fighting people are warring. If you ask them about the wars, they're often quite reluctant to tell you about them because they're usually horrific. Every now and then, they, you'll hear a bit about it. But wars typically are not civilised businesses. Uh, they are businesses, and they're sometimes necessary, I would admit, but the, most of the ones that we've had aren't. Uh, and most of them, I would argue, are eminently avoidable. And most people who support them have no idea how horrific they are and how they routinely end up in war crimes and probably will more often than not. The war in Ukraine is unusual for the fact that it is trench and artillery based 
But even NATO admits in its briefings of last and this year that most warfare in the future will be what they call fibula or fighting in built-up areas. That's urban warfare. Now, if you know anything about urban warfare, you know that people are going to get killed who shouldn't and it is, is quickly going to degrade into something that is indistinguishable from routine war crimes. There's just no getting away from it. If you fight in built-up areas, you're going to kill women and children, and those women and children who die are going to radicalise the local population against you, who do even more horrific things, including sending women and children as troops against you, booby-trapping everything. It's going to be a bloodbath. Now, this is not commonly understood, and that's because war is a figment of the media. Uh, that's a shame. As for the problem of criticising Israel, if you want to think about that from a Catholic point of view, they've bombed a Catholic hospital and a church, uh, and Itamar Ben-Gavir, who is the National Security Minister, two months ago described spitting on Christians as, as a, an honourable Jewish pastime. Those were his own words. Because there was a controversy about a video showing that Christians were being spat on by Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem. That's right. And that was his response. So, <clears throat> by that said, Itamar Ben-Gavir and his Jewish power Zionist party do not represent the majority of Israelis. The majority of Israelis don't like Benjamin Netanyahu and his warmongering government that does rely heavily upon extremists like Ben Gavir uh, because they realise that Ben Gavir is insane and that his party have twice called for the use of nuclear weapons in Gaza in the last three months and finally they're committed to destroying the Al-Aqsa Mosque in order to build or rebuild as it were the Jewish temple to usher in the arrival of their messiah which of course is the apocalypse and they are basically dedicated to provoking what you might call Armageddon now, this all sounds extremely preposterous, but if you look it up, and you can do, and I suggest you do in the Israeli press itself, which is published in English, have a look, just search for Itamar Ben-Gavir, Al-Aqsa, have a look for Mossad and Itamar Ben-Gavir, uh, and also for the <clears throat> Shin Bet, which is the National Security Organization, and for former heads of the IDF, which is the army, and for two former prime ministers who have all condemned him for trying to bring about a conflict that will likely result, and is supposed to result. In, in, in a large-scale nuclear exchange. Now, the, these people are dedicated to do this. This is not an accident. It's not going to be some uncontrollable problem that results as a result of their excessive actions in Gaza. This is what they want to do. Uh, and they've been on record about wanting to do it for, for decades. Ben Gavir was standing next to Netanyahu at a series of protests 30 years ago, calling for the death of Yitzhak Rabin, who had promised to create who was then the Israeli Prime Minister, promised to create a Palestinian state by 1999. He was murdered the next year by a supporter of Itamar Ben-Gavir. Ben-Gavir's first, ex first experience of television, in fact, was when he was interviewed by Israeli TV, having torn the hood ornament off Yitzhak Rabin's uh, Prime Ministerial car, saying, we got to his car and we'll get to him next. And three weeks later, three weeks later, he was killed. Now, these people are fanatics, and they don't care about you or anyone else, and they care about their own program, and Netanyahu relies upon them to keep himself in power. And why is he so desperate to do that? Because he faces criminal charges the minute that he leaves office. This is the reason why the United States State Department can't get rid of it. They started briefing against him about six weeks ago when they had a quick volt fast and said, instead of giving him the carte blanche that Blinken did on day one, that they are now rededicated to the two-state solution. And talk like that is expressly anti-Netanyahu, because Netanyahu spent 30 years destroying the two-state solution. Yes. So basically, the United States government 
has shown him the door, but does not have the power to make him walk through it. And and and, and as long as he's not walking through it, then you get what you're currently getting today. But uh, having said all that, Frank, it doesn't matter because your average American person here in the United States is all behind this. They're out there. They're, 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 they have little BB net and Yahoo buttons that they're wearing around. Yes, it's all good. It's all great. BB is our guy. He's our leader. <laughs> There are, there are 30 million, an estimated 30 million, Christian Zionists in the United States. Now, most people don't, aren't aware that most Zionists aren't even Jews. I mean, most, most Jews in Israel are secular. They don't, they don't, they don't profess a religion, and they're certainly not like rabid Zionists. Right. Whereas Netanyahu is now in government with people who want a total Zionist state and no Palestinians at all, and so on. So like, their, their plan, which was published to get rid of everyone who isn't uh, a Jew, is being executed now. That's what they're doing. But the Christian Zionists think this is a good idea because of a weird syncretism of what they understand to be Christianity and what they understand to be Judaism. I did some writing about this, uh, and the kind of like one of the people that actually sponsored Ted Cruz, uh, and the kind of people that sponsor that, that founded um, Ben Shapiro's organisation. They have a church, the Wilkes Brothers, they're called. They have a church which is a, an extremely weird amalgam of Christianity and Judaism, which is basically neither. They've just made it up. They, they blow a shofar, they don't celebrate Christmas, they have ambiguous ideas about the divinity of Christ. Uh, it's, 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 it's a figment, but they're very influential, they're billionaires, and they sponsor media operations which influence public opinion in the direction that you've just described. That's where it comes from. And, and, and to think that Ted Cruz, um, who is one of the premier Zionists in the United States, it's not just Cruz, though, on the other side of the aisle. You think that it was an accident now. Now we're all starting to, to, to pour back through. OK, well, uh, how do they get rid of McCarthy? <clears throat> how do they prevent Jordan from becoming speaker? And then here from my home state, where in the hell does this Mike Johnson guy come in? Why does he figure in? Well, he figures in so heavily because the guy is a Zionist. He is a fire-breathing Zionist. What was the first thing he said when he? Yeah, he immediately pledged support to Israel. That yes. was the first thing he said. He was on the phone immediately. That that, that they are his priorities. So you knew from the get-go. You knew. I even said it. I'm like, okay, this is not going to end well. Uh, at first, I was excited. Yay! Someone from Louisiana is going to be speaker of the house. And the first thing we're going to do, I pledge our complete and total support of our biggest ally in the region, Israel. And I went, no. <laughs> so yay goes to no. Well, I think that it's not all bad news. I mean, so far it hasn't escalated. It may well do. And I think there are, there are still sane voices in the United States government who recognize the, not only their realistic military limitations, meaning... Bluntly, that if the war did break out in that region, the United States and its allies would lose. Uh, secondly, that they've lost in Ukraine, and that was despite an extremely long and dedicated effort going back nearly 11 years to build the biggest and best equipped army in Europe, which it was. It's been destroyed. And then the conscript army was destroyed, and now you've got the, the, the old guys and the women fighting. Yep. So this is a humiliation that comes after Afghanistan and all the other wars that resulted in chaos. People are beginning to realize that these things, they amount to vast profits for people like Halliburton and General Dynamics, but absolute disaster, not only for the people in those countries, but for the people who started these wars, because huge waves of human migration are sparked by these. 
now you're beginning to see these distorted narratives appear uh, from the US State Department and elsewhere saying that hostile countries are going to weaponize migrant flows against the West. Well, who started those migrant flows by collapsing all those countries? It's not that they're going to weaponize them, it's that they wouldn't exist if you hadn't gone around bombing people that's all right. the time. Now, that, that's, that's, a, that's a connection that's never been made in the mainstream media because it's obvious and it's true. So, you know, it's, um, it's also a talking point of the enemy if you actually point out realities like this. But apart from the horrific human cost, this is destabilizing the world. And I believe that there are people in the US state who have realized this. And they've realized that this is going to lead to disaster if they continue on the same policy. Which is why I thought we saw a remarkable change in tone. When Anthony Blinken stood on stage with Netanyahu, he said, I came before you here today not as an American, but as a Jew. And he gave the world a strong message that he would back Israel 100% without any equivocation. No conditions. That's right. Anything they wanted. A couple of weeks ago, that changed. First of all, you started to see articles appear in Foreign Affairs magazine, which is the House magazine that Council on Foreign Relations. Council on Foreign Relations was founded about 100 years ago to basically direct the narrative in the media of the West. And it's the kind of the unofficial magazine of the deep state, if you like. Okay. If they're saying it, that's what they want to do. And they all started briefing against Netanyahu, and it was remarkable. And then Blinken came out himself in support of the two-state solution. And now you see people like the former Defence Secretary of Britain and current US uh, high-level officials saying that these policies of the Netanyahu government will foster a conflict that will go on for decades, and they're unsustainable. They clearly want him to leave. They clearly don't want that war to break out. And that's a war in which not only would Israel not hesitate to, the current government of Israel, not hesitate to use the nuclear option, but you have the largest army in NATO outside the US, not far from the borders in Turkey, with two million men able to be mobilized within several weeks. There's no country in Europe that has that kind of might. The armories are depleted. The armies are tiny. I mean, the British army is basically a token force now. Right. Uh, literally, it's full of tokens. Uh, I tried to get a piece <laughs> published the other week showing how Colour Sergeant Gorlock appeared on a, a panel showing women in the army. There's these four women, one, two, three, four. And then there's this enormous kind of shaven yeti in a dress. <laughs> and uh, we're compelled to take Sergeant Gorlock seriously, right? Because that's the modern army. And if you don't agree with that, then you're not in it. You know, so I'm glad I'm not. So there, there we are. But the thing is, is that you're looking at a conflict that can't be contained if it sparks. If it, if it comes outside of the borders of Israel, if people like, if they, even if they go into Lebanon, this, this would be disastrous. The Israelis can't win a, a, a two-front war on their own, and that means outside involvement, uh, which I'm not sure would be forthcoming. And by the way, the Israelis lost against the Lebanese in 2008 when they last tried it on. And the Lebanese have a far better missile system there. They've got fourth-gen missiles. They've got I think about 50,000 modern near hypersonic missiles and about another 80,000 of uh, slightly less impressive ones, but enough to level most of the cities up there. This is not the old uh, ragtag army of 10 years ago. These people are serious and they've got very strong regional allies who are used to war fighting and who are fighting against what they consider to be an exhausted and overextended enemy in the United States. This is an, an, an interesting point. Uh, Frank Wright is the uh, author on Substack. The sub, uh, the uh, FrankWright.substack.com. That's W R I G H T. That's right. Spell it. Spell it. Well, no, you spelled it wrong in your card. 
frankwright.substack.com. Let's talk about this for just a moment while we have our, our resident. You see, he's got his expert glasses on now. Our resident expert on on, on all of these things. Um, uh, from the point of view of the, the war escalating, okay. So the warmongers and the war hawks here, Nikki Haley and Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and all the rest of the Zionists, they, they pretend as though the United States military is, is undefeatable, that we've never lost and we can't lose. And so they use this as, well, we're going to go in there and if you mess with us and we get involved and we're going to win— as Frank just pointed out, the Turks have two million men. We don't know how many the Russians have. They're saying nothing, and you just mentioned the Lebanese and what the Lebanese army says. All this in an election year where the regime is holding on to all of its wars as the card that it thinks it can play. As you point out, dude, Trump is going to win because even the deep state needs some sort of a reprieve here to uh, to, to kind of re rebuild its forces up and to rearrange the bad guys so that there could be another go of this in five years. So they, they almost it's like they need Trump. So you say Trump's going to win. Yeah, yeah he's going to win uh, for, for several reasons. One, um, the, the fantasy empire is bad for business. Just, just telling people that they're evil because they notice reality is that's, very bad for that's business. A great, that's a great quote. I'm stealing that from your card. The fantasy... What did you say? The what? The fantasy empire is bad for the business. The fantasy empire is bad for business. I'm writing it down. <laughs> empire, empire is fundamentally a business. As we learned from the British Empire, it's, it's, it's mercantilism uh, you know, plus a flag, right? If you haven't got any business, if, if you're desperately in debt, if you can't fund your own armies, if you can't staff them, if you can't recruit soldiers into this great big war machine, if you can't even uh, supply the shells and ammunition to it when it goes forward, and if you can't put an expeditionary force in a field that's going to win, then where is your power? The, the, the United States is mainly a naval power, right? It's not a land power, it's a naval power because it's isolated by the sea. And global trade is secured under the American empire, if you like, True. is secured by the United States Navy. I mean, this is an enormous benefit to, you know, the libertarians. If you talk, if you point out to this that their, their supposed free market um, ideal is actually guaranteed by an enormous taxpayer-funded navy, then they, they haven't got a leg to stand on. But like, that's, that's the basic business model of the United States empire, right? Now, if, you, if it no longer works because of insane policies that staff these systems with people who are just routinely incompetent, and if you have diplomats who can't negotiate with people and just insult them and look embarrassing on live video feeds from high-level meetings with the Chinese and the Russians, then you, you are steering the ship of state onto the rocks. The fundamental point about why Trump's going to win is because the, the people with the enormous money and power invested in the United States empire see that this is bad for business and Trump will do better business. No one could do it worse, to be honest. It's been an unmitigated disaster. Secondly, it's going to prove very impossible to steal another election. Mm -hmm. There isn't a COVID lockdown. These techniques have been described in the open, the, the techniques that were used to produce falsehoods and false results in the election have been put on record by organizations like the polling company Rasmussen, which is nominally independent and has investigated various anomalies. The, the fact that the court cases were thrown out itself has been put under the proper scrutiny and you can see that there are political reasons for that. This whole process stinks and people know it and they can see that the system is corrupt and it's run by buffoons who believe in literal fairy tales. And even now some of them are still telling you that Russia's losing and that Ukraine's going to survive and be a democracy and it's going to enter the European Union. 
Ukraine is going to cease to exist as it used to. And that is a problem that was created again by the empire of fantasy when they told Boris Johnson to go and destroy an agreed peace agreement. So Trump is going to win because of an, an, un, an unbroken catalogue of failure that is destroying the business model of the American empire itself. Wow. Not only that, not only is it uneconomical, not only is it no longer the 90s in the sense of its, uh, of its military power, like the people who compose the military and its ability to project military force overseas, it's not the 90s anymore. Those people are gone. That's not the same military. It's not the same. But not only that, it has an enormous democratic deficit. People in America don't so much believe in the United States anymore. And that's the thing that kills empires. That's the thing that really killed the Soviet Union, is that people realized they had no compelling reason to believe in it any longer. And that even the people who were supposed to enforce it no longer believed in it. So you, you have a civil strife boiling on the back burner. You have, you have cities full of bent over kind of vampiric scenes <laughs> of zombie, zombie drug addicts. You, you have excrement maps in, in, in San Francisco. It's embarrassing. The only way to clean up that city is to get the communist dictator of China to come and visit for a week. What does that tell you about America? Well, maybe get him to <clears throat> run the city. <laughs> maybe, maybe, get, maybe buy him a house there and it'll look great all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to point one thing out here while I uh, have Frank on, uh, on, on the phone about the Navy. So in the U.S. Constitution, it says... You can raise an army uh, to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to, to, to that use shall be for uh, a longer term than two years to provide and maintain a navy. The founding fathers of the United States uh, may not have gotten everything right, but they did know that we were landlocked and surrounded by an ocean on either side and to the south as far as they knew. And so they knew that commerce and trade on the high sea is always protected by a country's navy. Which is why, in the early part of the 19th century, President Jefferson basically used the then very uh, young, nascent, um, and, not very, uh, not, and not very largely staffed United States Marine Corps, and he sent them to Tripoli. He sent them to, to, to Libya to go put down, to go defend American trade on the high seas from the Barbary pirates. If you read the biography of John Adams, John Adams actually went to, uh, when he went to France, he met with the Sultan of Libya. And the Sultan of Libya, and he was like, okay, what's it going to take to get you to stop raiding and marauding and raping and robbing and pillaging our ships on the high sea? And the Sultan told him, uh, that would be three million pounds. And Adams went, ah, we just formed a union. We don't have that kind of money. That's not going to happen. Three million pounds, three million pounds for how long? And he goes, that's for each year, three million pounds. And so I think the term was three million. And so Adams wrote back to, to Washington and went, dude, these people are flipping nuts. They are nuts. NVTS nuts. Uh, you're going to need a Navy. You <laughs> take the three million pounds and make a Navy. And it was then that the first naval buildup began. And ultimately, the United States Navy, the French Navy, and the English Navy had to go basically into, uh, in, into war stance against the, the pirates of the Barbary Coast. And ultimately, Her Majesty's Navy and the United States Navy won out. We beat them. And piracy was put, it was sunk to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. Most people don't know that story, but you're right. If you're going to do trade, especially if you're going to do it on the high seas, you have to have a very well-run, large navy.
Well, look, what's happened to that now? Because today, the Houthis in Yemen have effectively closed the um, the Red Sea to oil trade. Not not all of it. The BP apparently has suspended shipping operations through through the Suez Canal. Now, if you had an effective navy, that wouldn't happen, would it? That's right. That's now, right. that's that, that's a choke point, and obviously points towards what some people have suggested to be a second Suez moment in the crisis altogether. But again, this this crisis is twofold. One, the United States does not enjoy the power that the warmongers say that it does. It just doesn't. It, it can't win wars. It hasn't won a war for a very long time, uh, probably since the Spanish-American War, to be honest, But um, that, which is a very long time ago. If you look at the other ones... Well, Korea was fought to a standstill over a line. Uh, the Soviet Union won the Second World War. Their entry into the First World War was probably decisive, so you could say that. But, you know, you're going back a very long time. All the forever wars have been lost. And there's, there's no fear of that force by a group of insurgents who nonetheless have a thousand-year claim to ruling Yemen and have stuffed the Saudis on several occasions. They're very well-organized war fighters, the Houthis, or Ansarullah, as they like to call themselves. But these people have effectively stopped much of the oil trade through the Suez Canal as of today. Now, where is that vast might today? Uh, and why isn't it being brought to bear on that? And how has how's this happened? This has happened not because the United States is weak. It has by far the most powerful navy in the world still, even though there are more ships in China. It's probably better organised and better proven. The thing is, is that it isn't better directed. The, the people in charge of these operations... Uh, not only the politicians, but also the high-level military staff, the people who've been selected for ideological reasons. That's right. And this ideology, it, it's not just that I disagree with it personally, but I disagree with it on principle, not, not just because of its effects, but because of its inspiration, which is from make-belief. These people literally believe that they have the power to author reality and that what they say goes, and that will change the shape of the world, and it's simply not true. You have to engage with hard realities, like what is the war fighting capability of the people that we've just upset in this region, and what are the possible consequences? That's the basis of a sensible and realistic diplomacy, and that's clearly not been at work here. This is the reason why these people are so disastrously bad for business, because they can't even manage one of the three major naval choke points in the world, with the world's by far greatest and most powerful navy. This, there is only three of them. Uh, and the Suez is the most obvious. And if you have to suspend oil shipping through there for one day due to enemy military action, that is a severe humiliation for the United States and its Navy. Wow, that's incredible. Most people, uh, I wasn't keeping up with that part of the, of the war and, the, and of the conflict here. But again, we have done shows here on the Mike Churchill and the Crusade Channel where we've talked about the Esprit de Corps. And we've talked about the fact that uh, the officer corps and the non-commissioned officer corps used to be something that the American people and from generation, even the generations passed down. Well, my son's going to go to officer candidate school. Yeah, my son's going to go to Annapolis. He's going to go graduate from the, the Naval Academy. These are something that American families were very proud of. You almost could say that there was some sort of, it was almost some sort of a sense of primogenitor where, you know, the firstborn male in a family would, he would be the officer of the land. The same thing was true in Britain. 
for, for centuries, centuries you passed down. I mean, if you read the history of, of, of British military families, you know, you'll find out that Lord Cornwallis's grandfather, like, fought, in a, uh, not Napoleon, uh, uh, whatever. Cornwallis was like a third generation. You'll find the Howe brothers um, the, the, that fought over here. One was, uh, was Royal Navy. One was with the Dragoons. The Howe brothers, these were hereditary positions that you passed on because it was a, it was, it was, it was a code of honor that went with that. You see how killing tradition, when you start killing tradition off, it kills off the good things that kept the tradition going? Well, they have a, a recruitment crisis here and in the United States, and the one in the United States on a far larger scale, but you can't fill ranks. I mean, there's a meme going around where it basically it says, oh, look, they've, they've brought out a new army advert for the U.S. Army, and there's, there's, there's white men in it, so this means we must be going to war. <laughs> because, you know, last year it was all kind of like uh, lesbian trannies and things like that. So it was some kind of extreme, one of the gayest cartoons I've ever seen, actually, was uh, an advertisement for the United States Army. It was horrible. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's honestly no better here. Like, I took my son when he was a little tot uh, in 2018 on the anniversary of the armistice to, to Tietvel and the memorial there. Uh, and there's a lot of the names of our family on there, as there are in lots of other big bits of stone in uh, northern France. You know, to show him that, and with a view that one day he might, you know, follow uh, going to uniform, but he's not going to go into uniform, and I'll strongly advise it, uh, against it because he's not a queer. And uh, if if he were a queer, it'd be a very good place for him, right? But since I do not want my son to be a queer, I'm not going to put him into the British Army because the British Army's gay. Uh, and uh, if if you aren't if you aren't gay uh, or, or you know wear a wig um, in in a non-serious manner then uh, you, uh, you have no place in it, really. And this, this isn't just an ideological objection, right? The thing is, is that there are other reasons to object to that. You know, being promoted as a, a, you know, kind of a sexual lifestyle, being promoted as a protected identity is questionable at best. But the thing is, is it does not improve war fighting uh, capability. It actually makes it far more likely that my son and myself and my friends and my fellow soldiers would be killed. Uh, and I've seen this in, in my own life directly by people inspired in positions of leadership who've been promoted there for reasons other than their competence, uh, giving you false information about the capacity of your new comrades in arms, which is clearly going to get you killed. Um, you know, basically putting women and weak men and so on into the front line who are incapable of looking after themselves or taking care of their own personal administration or in many cases even carrying their own kit. Uh, this is It's obvious what would be the outcome, but it is forbidden to state the obvious. Now, this means that the army's policies in, in diversity and inclusion will result in massive casualties uh, and your unnecessary death. And that is disastrous for a, a war fighting operation, which needs to be realistic about these things, uh, because it does mean uh, the difference between being horribly maimed or evaporated. We're evaporated. Uh, Frank Wright is uh, with us on our uh, StreamYard Maker Hotline here. So uh, read the piece. We won't have time to get into all of it, but read his, uh, his latest series, The Road to Reality. Two parts in that. Uh, reality really is, is what they're at war against. You know, for the two years you and I have been talking, or three years now, that you and I have been talking about, uh, about these things, which began with the Corona Doom, it was the first full-scale, real global assault on reality. 
The reality was is that there never was a pandemic. Uh, was there a flu season that year? Yes. Um, and, and did they manipulate it? Yes. Did they cook the books? Yes. Um, the whole thing was entirely predictable. Um, anyone that had access and was willing just to use simple logic like the Swiss opposition research doctor, which is where I started in January of 2020, going, like, hey, this guy's making a lot of sense. And he was writing about what was going on in Italy. And he's going like, no, 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 no. They went to the specific region in Italy. They went to the Lombard region. Why did they go to the Lombard region? Oldest population, worst climate, and highest concentration of what they call VOCs in the air, volatile organic compounds, and a migrant Chinese worker force of virtually guarantee bringing Wuhan, Wu flu virus into Lombard. Did a lot of old people in Lombard get sick? Yes. Intentionally, they were basically were infected. This is what the globalists use. It's in Italy. It's in, they're all dying in Italy. That was the, they extrapolated your guy, your boy. And, and, and at, the, at the Royal College, what was his name? Neil, uh, he used the data Ferguson. from the lump. Who? Neil Ferguson. He, he's also made a horrific mistake on BSE, the BSE scandal. Uh, people forgot about that. But there was a scandal about tainted meats resulting from uh, brain disease in cows. It was apparently transmissible to humans in Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. That's right. Yes, Spongiform yes. encephalopathy. Now, um, it was Ferguson whose advice led to Britain burning hundreds of thousands of cattle, maybe millions, I forget, but enormous funeral pyres of otherwise healthy animals just being torched in, in, in these horrific apocalyptic scenes up and down the country for nothing. Right. And, 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 and so he used the data from Lombard, put... English inputs into it and then got three to four million Brits dead this summer. We don't act immediately. And of course, that idiot who doesn't even have brain cells, Boris Johnson, fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. Maybe he wanted to fall for it. Uh, His former advisor, Dominic Cummings, uh, often described him when he, when he left his office with him uh, as he just put a little emoji of a trolley, like a shopping trolley, <laughs> where you've got a shopping cart, right? And I actually contacted him a few times, you know, and saying to him, look, what, what's all this about the trolley? And he never said anything. He really, he'll reply to you about other stuff. But, 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 but what's all this about the trolley? And he's like, he, he never said it. But I gradually I figured it out. It's like, the reason why he calls Boris Johnson the trolley is because like a supermarket trolley, People just fill him up with stuff that they want and push him around. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's exactly what he is. You know, he, he is. He's, just, he's, he's, he's perfect. But the, one of the worst things about that lockdown insanity was the way that it, it that the whole propaganda campaign it basically penalised the most circumspect uh, and intelligent people. Like if you were if you were careful about these things, if you saw how dubious it all was, it basically penalised the wise. Yep. And, and it empowered the unwise yep. and the suggestible yep. to criticise and, and denounce them and despise you. And this divided families, and it still has. And there was an awful study by Nature, the science magazine Nature, that found uh, a global pandemic of hatred of the unvaccinated as a result. So it encouraged the deep divisions in society that are still there. And not, not only that, apart from the horrendous vaccines, which are have been discovered to be polluted with up to 30 or 40 percent rogue DNA for no reason at all other than to give you turbo cancer, it seems. Apart from that, the social fabric, it said, in a recent report in Britain said, the social fabric has never recovered from, from lockdown. Meaning, you know, not just the fact that shops have been shuttered and all that money's been funneled to Jeff Bezos. It's also community groups and the, and the fact of communities and people's face-to-face -face contact 
And my wife works in teaching. She's a teacher. She's a lecturer. And she says that she's now teaching kids who are just glued to their phones and can't concentrate. And they know they are. And they're not happy about it. But that's what they've learned through being stuck to a screen for 10 years because of, a, because of flu. It's, it's, the damage is enormous. And one of the reasons why you'll never see that fully acknowledged is because so many people instrumentalise that to feel superior about people who warned them of this damage. Yeah, and uh, you know you could see this in so many ways. We talked last week. I told um, uh, the audience, Frank, uh, I, I told them, I'm like, is the world really as bad or th are things and times really as bad as you think they are? Or are you seeing on your scrolling screens, you're seeing that there's bad, but it's not actually happening to you. Which is not to say there aren't evil people out there that want to kill you, because there are, and they do want to kill you. Um, and they want to subjugate you and all that. But it is now the mentality that you pick one of these things up, and look, you are glued to it. The dude was a genius that made the the series. I can't remember the British guy's name. Is one of yours uh, that made the series that they had on Netflix? I, got, I think it started in 2015. Black Mirror. That Black Mirror dude was simply. I mean, dude, that dude was looking into the future and going like, "This is what's going to happen if you don't. If we don't. If you don't get a hold of this right now and stop it, the Black Mirror scenario. And like the first season of Black Mirror, all five of those first episodes have all come true. Everything well, that you know, is Charlie Brooker. He was a comedian, right? He makes funny things, like TV critic. And he, stuff. he was genius. He started, off, he started off writing for a kid's comic that I used to buy when I was a kid called Oink. It was about pigs <laughs> and like scatological humor and stuff. It's really funny. And he, he wrote for that when he was about 15, I think. And then he started doing video game reviews and playing games and that. And yeah, he is. He's, he's, he's clever and he's funny and his comedy is brilliant. Uh, I mean, you know, when he's funny, he's hilarious. But that's very prescient. I mean, but the, what I wanted to say before I go, right, is that it is not all doom and gloom. That's right. Right. Re reality is coming back in terms of foreign policy and the shape of the West and the way that things are run. I think there's a very serious and compelling argument to be made that we are seeing, if you like, kind of peak fantasy because nothing works. Because the institutions, are, they're not collapsing. They're just populated by people who shouldn't be there. Or idiots. Now, well, yeah, we've got a system that could work. Yeah, but it's clogged up. There's sand in the engine. Hmm. You know, we, we we can clear it out. It can be cleaned out. It will be. It's not just not because of some popular awakening or some great enlightenment of the people. That's that's never worked. It's never changed. Things don't change because of that. They change because it's bad for business, right? And it is bad for business. You're seeing people like even Lammy Fink is rejecting the terms ESG, the toxic brand. He calls it. There, there are companies, shareholders, moving away. There are alternative share dealing platforms now that avoid all these things. Markets have adapted to it. Politicians and diplomats are adapting to it. Anyone, basically, politicians who are all a venal bunch, politicians are cottoning on to the fact that if you just say, I will make things work again, I am not insane, I believe in what you believe in, basic common sense reality, then they'll clean up at the polls. They're beginning to realise that. But they just have to preach, if you like, competence and sanity. You don't have to have any great grand dream anymore. All we want is for things not to be falling apart uh, and to hear the constant honking of clown horns and clown cars arriving and dropping to bits. With, with seltzer bottles. With seltzer bottles. <laughs> 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 I mean, like, everyone's sick of that noise now. I've been honked to death. I've been honked to death. I don't want to be honked at anymore. 
Yeah, that's it. Just stop honking at me. Okay. Stop honking at me. Okay, I'm gonna. All right, I'm gonna give you a final statement, and uh, you react, and then I'm gonna uh, tell you one small factoid, and then you can go. All right. All right. All right. Final statement. Final statement. I, I, I've been telling the audience uh, uh, this, and I, now I have 100% committed to it. I am committed to it, and that is this. In this situation, with as bad as it has gotten, with what the Biden regime has done with the rest of the clowns in, in, in clown world out there in fantasy land, right now, of all the practical solutions, and I'm just, just, just pure practical, this is not ideological, this is not, this, this is, this, there's not going to be a war on for the restoration of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Just practically speaking, the only solve on the horizon that the people of the United States have is to elect Trump. And that's it. The guy will get in there and he will fix some of this. He'll fix a significant portion of it because that's what he does. That's what he's done his whole life. It's what he did for four years when, he, well, for three and a half, two and a half years or three years uh, when he, he he was president. He is the, the, the now he is the note. I did not. I, he's not salvation. He is not the future. But if you want to get start to repair this, that's the only choice. And that's what I've known in 2024. When I come back in January, it's going to be all Trump all the time. Not not, not what I could do every show, but yes, I'm going to defend Trump and I'm going to promote him. Like, look, dude, dude, just just vote your pocketbook for once in your life. This is a common sense decision. You don't need I. And we are not going to get ideology, social. You're not going to get social moral doctrine out of this guy. Okay, fine. We're going to have to deal with that at a later date. But do you want to fix this clown car and the clowns running around going, eh, 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 and with the horns and squirting us with seltzer, then Trump is the guy. And you say Chris, what? I, I say yes, he's going to win. Uh, I don't think they're going to kill him or any of those bizarre things. I think he's, he's good for the business of empire. I think the court cases will come to nothing. And I think, yes, it's important to remember that he's a human being. He's not salvation. And you shouldn't fall prey to leaderism, you know, the kind of instinctive worship or awaiting someone to come and solve all your problems which I, I would call leaderism, that, you know, they, once these people arrive and when they do and they'll be perfect, then they'll solve all my problems for me and so I don't have to do anything. I think alongside that, remember that you can do a lot yourself and you should do, especially, you know, with it being um, Christmas coming up and everything, we should all remember that the, what the true meaning of Christmas is, which is, which is money, of course. And so, <laughs> they, you know, if you realise this as a profoundly convinced Catholic, I think one of the best ideas I've ever heard, right, it's certainly one I was very fortunate to hear, it wasn't my idea, was that you should try and think of yourself as a social missionary. When you see all this ruin around you and everything like that, you know, if you've got, if you've got, if you can't do it, fair enough. But if you've got the time or the money or the effort, it's not always about money. Sometimes it's about listening or being kind to people. Then see the ruined world as something that you ought to take a hand in repairing. Just like, you know, you would pick litter up if you see it in, uh, in the street. Think about what you can do and just do that. And it will make your life better and it will make other people's lives better. And that's the kind of thing that builds a nation. So think of yourself as a social missionary as well. Don't just wait for, you know, orange man good to come back <laughs> and wave his, his, his magic orange wand and start skateboarding with Kim Jong-un. You know, which he will, which he will do. He will. Don't, don't worry about that. Yeah, he will. He will build a skateboard bowl on the, you know, demarcation line, <laughs> the so, and he will be popping airs with it. But that's not going to solve everything. You have a role to play too, and think of yourself as a social missionary, and in and in your own way, do God's work that way. 
That's fantastic advice. Now, the thing I want to leave you with so you, I can prep you for our, our, our next conversation, which you probably already knew this. I just discovered it. Do you know who owned the Zapruder film? No. No, I didn't. Henry Luce. What? Luce bought the Zapruder film from Abraham Zapruder in 1965 or 64. And uh, no one had ever seen it. The Zapruder did not show it to the FBI or anyone. He uh, had the film developed. His family knew about it. And he didn't think it was that big of a deal. Somehow Luce found out about it, Time Life magazine. And Luce went down and made the deal with Zapruder. And he bought the film from him and made him sign all the, the, right, the rights away in perpetuity. In 1968, uh, Abraham Zapruder uh, was diagnosed with stomach cancer. It was terminal. They told him, look, you're not going to, you, you maybe have a year. And he contacted Henry Lewis and he said, I'm going to die in a year. I made a mistake when I sold you my film and all the rights to it. I want a copy for my family. So for my family to have it, will you give me a copy? And to their credit, Time Life actually gave a copy of the film to the Zapruder family. This led then to Zapruder's son, in 1975, um, urging uh, Time Life magazine to release the film to the American public, which Time Life magazine did not do, but they gave the Zapruder family permission for ABC to broadcast it. And in 1975, Geraldo Rivera, a very young Geraldo Rivera, uh, with an audience with one of Zapruder's son, and I forget who the other guy was, debuted the Zapruder film to the world. And it was then that the American people saw the horror of what had been done to John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Um, uh, and the world has never been the same since. Because the American, the, the, the truth of what happened to Kennedy, uh, Frank, was, was hidden. No one knew that the back of his head was blown off and just how violent uh, his murder was. Um, the film came out in 1975, 12 years after Kennedy was actually assassinated. Um, uh, and uh, this is what uh, sparked so many conspiracy theories. And, but they're not conspiracy theories. I mean, this stuff has actually happened. So an interesting twist, because you and I have talked about Henry Luce as the father of all advertising lies well he locked up and helped perpetrate one of the greatest lies of all which is that the assassination of john fitzgerald kennedy was some kind of a sanitized peaceful event and it was uh, it was not it was horrifically horrifically violent well, i had no idea no i didn't know it i didn't know it either i just learned it yeah. like in the last three months I mean, you can go on, you can go on YouTube and do, 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 just YouTube search Geraldo's a Pruder film, and you can watch that show where they broadcast. Yeah, yeah, you can see it. So um, you can find Frank uh, hiding in plain sight, frankwright.substack.com, frankwright.substack.com. I look forward to God, uh, God willing, you and I uh, are still able to uh, are still alive and on this side of the uh, of the grave. <laughs> like friends. <laughs> <laughs> to speak in 2024, uh, uh, a blessed remainder of Advent, a Merry Christmas to you and your family, and uh, here's to seeing you in 2024, and and uh, to uh, Donald Trump 2024. Indeed. Uh, thank you again, Mike. God bless you all. It's a pleasure. All right, no, it's my pleasure as always, uh, Frank, and thank you for your time. Uh, you, you, you're, you're. Um, 
There's not many people would accept uh, as a compliment, so you, you could take it as a compliment or as an insult. You and I think a lot alike. So either either congratulations or condolences, depending on whose side you're on. <laughs> I'm a bigot by proxy. <laughs> <laughs> you groom me, Mike. You groom me. I am, <laughs> I am a groomer. I am an intellectual groomer. All right. Hey, oh, Frank. I thought, thank you. Thank I, you, Mike. I got to go. God bless you, brother. Talk soon. Bye-bye. All right. Condolences, depending on whose side you're on. I'm a bigot by proxy. <laughs> you groom me, Mike. You groom me. I am, <laughs> I am a groomer. I am an intellectual groomer. All right. Hey, oh, Frank. I thought, thank you. Thank I, you, Mike. I got to go. God bless you, brother. Talk soon. Bye-bye. All right.